the Wildlife Observer Network. All right, and welcome to Birding Today. I'm one of your hosts, Tony Crozell, with... That's your cue. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, George Armiston. Very happy to be here with you, man. And so this podcast is um, full circle for me, um, I guess for us, because the first podcast I tried to do was with George, I don't know, six years ago. And yes. we went into a studio and tried to make it work, and and we it just for whatever reasons things didn't work out then and so now that I'm doing this uh, wildlife observer network we're back so this is we're you know we're back doing a podcast together and this is pretty exciting uh, for me um, I like George very 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 good friend of mine um, we actually spend more time not birding together than we do birding um, yeah. I'll talk about George uh, fill in the details if I don't have you are do you want to mention who you work for, or do you want to keep keep it vague for the podcast purposes? Oh, I, I, I'm happy to give a brief intro. Okay, uh, yeah, go for it. Yeah, I am lifelong Philadelphian, been birding since I was nine years old. My dad's a birder, got me into it early. I now work for Rock Jumper Birding Tours. Uh, we do bird watching tours all over the all over the world, uh, and I've traveled a lot for work and. Uh, yeah, I, I love birding here in Philly. I love finding, you know, little nooks in uh, the planet to uh, to just to try to peel back the layers and and uh, and see what birds are there. And uh, I always say the only thing more exhilarating than seeing a new bird you haven't seen before is sharing that sighting with somebody else. So I think uh, people that are into birds are fascinating as well cool interesting odd sometimes so i'm psyched to talk about all that stuff and you used to work for the aba the american Bird association right as the events coordinator that's right yeah i was there for almost five years uh and yeah we planned a whole bunch of different events uh domestic events in the u.s international events um was a great time a great organization american birding association and former president of the delaware valley ornithological club Yes, yeah, here in in uh, in Philly, the arguably well, put it this way, one of the oldest bird clubs in the country. Uh, we're over what are we get, we're getting close to 130 years old, I guess, right? Yeah, and um, yeah, uh, so uh, yeah, that was I'm still still on the council. Love the club, love the community. Uh, feel very fortunate to be a part of it. And you've written two books, right? so far yes yeah i've done i did a book um while i was with the american birding association to the a field guide to the birds of pennsylvania uh which uh, has photos by brian small the great photographer brian small i wrote most i wrote the text and contributed a few photos and then also better birding published by princeton press co-authored with brian sullivan of ebert and cornell uh, so those are the those are the two books I spent some years working on. Would love to do some more book projects, but uh, um, you know, time time is short. Yeah, I, I love Princeton, and um, I, when there was a few different birding events, I've seen the what's the it's a British guy, right? The, the main publisher guy for Field Guide, yeah, Robert Kirk. Yeah, yeah, I have a biggest man crush on him, and yeah. uh, 
um, I always like, impress the people at the Princeton booths because I, I'll basically I'll buy a few and then I and then I'll, I'll basically point out the books and they got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. And I have I don't know, a good third of my books are probably Princeton, and oh, yeah. um, I want to make a so one day I want to like put I want to recreate the Scarface photo where he has piles and piles of cocaine, right? And I just want to have me sitting at the table with piles and piles of Princeton field guides. Oh, you got to make that happen, and Robert would love that too. Yeah, Robert. we got to get him on here. Yeah, yeah. You know, Robert Robert used to be a roadie for Deep Purple back in the day. Uh, so he's uh, he, he would totally vibe off of that. He'd oh, be into it. Oh, dude, but yeah, we got to make it happen. I'm a, I'm a huge I mean, fan of what they do. I, I love their field guides. Um, and, um, yeah. Um, all right, so this podcast, what we're trying to accomplish with this is a kind of a catch-all for birding topics. And with an international focus, George and I uh, love traveling overseas, George is, but although you live in your office job now, but you were a uh, tour leader for, what, a decade or more? Yeah, yeah, I still lead some trips, mostly a desk jockey these days, but I was a full-time guide for over 10 years. And so I I love international birding. Um, But right now we're at different times. We are having experiencing times where... We are stuck at home. So I think for this podcast today, we're going to talk about birding from home, uh, get into a little bit about uh, yard birding. Uh, we're going to talk about, you have a book you want to talk about? Yeah. I'm a, yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, it's a book about James Bond. Um, so we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, just want to kind of pump it up. I've just started reading it and, uh, and fo- I suspect it's it's a new topic for some folks um, that might it might have a twist people don't quite realize. Yeah, great. So, is there anything else? Or is that the main two slash three things you're going to talk about today? COVID nineteen, yard birding, and um, this book. Yeah, no, that sounds that sounds good. I imagine that'll take us away. And knowing you and me, we will probably find uh, another topic or two to discuss along the way. So, um, as we get into this COVID-19 talk, an interview that's going to go up um, under this brand, Burning Today, um, either before or after this one, is uh, with Ed Williams, who started the Bird Defect at Home um, Facebook page. Yes. Yeah, so I did an interview with him, and he's actually, I don't know if you know this, George, he's actually a good friend of mine. I didn't know that. I love that group. I've been following it. You know, pretty avidly since this whole thing started, it's been uh, it's been a, a, a therapeutic one to to, uh, to stay involved in. So our buddy Rob Hinson, um, the uh, British birder, did his postdoc here, then moved to Australia to be with his wife. He, him, and Ed are like main birding buddies together. So when I did my Cape York trip with Rob, Ed came along along with his guys Jaden, and Ed and I hit it off immediately, and. Ed's visited me twice here, so um, yeah, like you know, I think I, I literally might have been the first person to uh, uh, accept the invite to Burton Beck at home. I have the founder badge on my thing, so nice. so that's gonna so we you know, we have a whole episode of dedicated to Burton Beck at home. But let's talk about other. How have you been birding um, from home or from yeah. Well, I, I got to say, I feel pretty fortunate relative to some of the folks I'm talking to elsewhere around the world, uh, friends in Colombia and Ecuador and South Africa and a variety of other countries. I feel like we're 
here in Philly at least, um, kind of fortunate in that we are still actually allowed outside of our houses. Um, now, granted, there's there are dangers to be aware of, and I'm I'm definitely uh, not trying to encourage any irresponsible behavior. But I feel fortunate that I am able to get out and get to some green space and see a few birds as spring migration is really heating up right now. Um, so yeah, man, I've, I've been trying to get out a couple times a week. Um, you know, there's, there's well-known spots around here like FDR park and the Heinz refuge, uh, which is of course the, one of the better, most visited birding spots in the country. It's the number one e-bird hotspot in Pennsylvania here. Um, those have a fair amount of traffic in terms of the people because they're well-known spots even beyond uh, us birders. Um, but yeah, they they have been a godsend, um, and and I'm I feel fortunate also to know the city and in the area well enough that I know a few little nooks and crannies where I can go and be away from people and enjoy birds and nature, um, pretty much by myself. So I've been trying to do that. I think all of us have tried to to find ways to cope with this situation um like i say i think here we're better off than some of the folks elsewhere um i find it really interesting that these animal shelters in florida new york city um, some other places i've read about probably here in philly too uh these animal shelters are either empty or or there's more animals you know, there's fewer animals than there's been in years in these animal shelters because everybody is fostering cats and dogs, and and it's never been more competitive actually to get one. And at the same time, our parks are full, right? People are 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 rolling into parks. In some places, it's been a problem. They've actually had to close them. But I think it speaks to the character um, and the nature of us that we. In, in rough times like this, we seek out trees and we we try to commune with animals. Um, so I've been doing that. I know others have been doing it too. Um, I and I, I know you've gotten some, some yard birds uh, even today. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I feel lucky in that respect. I've never been more thankful for birds and to be able to witness bird migration than I am right now. Yeah, it's funny you're talking about animals. I literally have my my cat in my lap just jumped in. Um, what, I, what's your cat's name? Shamu. Shamu. And I don't know how much longer Shamu is going to be with us. Um, he's got, um, he has heart failure and um, uh, enlarged thyroid, and he's been on medicine for a while. But we, we, we took him in three times now to like, get his chest strained. And the last time they were basically like, we can't keep doing this. So uh, you might want to just say, good, you know, Goodbye, you know, you know, say goodbye to him over the weekend to bring him in, and um, so we keep waiting for him to kind of like get to a place where it's clear he's, you know, he's in bad time. shape, you know, yeah, yeah, um, like where it's like, you know, I I want to, I don't want to just like take him, you know, you don't, you don't put your, an elderly person, you know, yeah, obviously we don't, you know, <laughs> euthanize our own generally, although it's legal some places, but you know. Um, you don't think you, you know, just because someone becomes like, has some trouble breathing or whatever, you don't necessarily like think they should die. Um, but I, I want my, so I don't know, 
you know, with, with this cat, I don't want it to, I don't want to put him down. Um, but, uh, it, I mean, I want yeah, to wait until, until I know that, he, I, I want to know he's not suffering, right? If he's suffering, right. then I'm going to put him down. But the cat acts totally normal. He, like, he jumps in my lap, he follows me around, he, like, begs for food, and, like, and, uh, plays, so I'm like, I'm like, okay, well, you know, like, as soon as you let me, give me an indication that you're, you know, that you're in pain, or you're not, then I'll do what I have to do, but... Right. He's, like, he's literally in my, in my lap, parent like crazy, you could probably, because we're on skate, we have a bit of static in the background, um, but, uh... You know, you might hear him purring. He's right next to the microphone. It's crazy. So, yeah, <laughs> so, my girlfriend just went through that as well, where she got she had an older cat and had to make a call <clears throat> as to when was the right time to say goodbye. And uh, it's not an easy thing because, you know, but eventually he did, it. like you say, his behavior kind of showed her what needed to be done. Um, and, uh, but yeah, not not an easy thing. Yeah, we went to, last night. Like we went to bed. Like I was, I was like balling, being like, "All right." Like, and this morning we woke up being like, "All right," like we're probably gonna find, you know, basically like we're either gonna find him dead or we're gonna have to take him in, right? Right, right. And like, um, we come downstairs and he greases at the stairs and he's and he's like yelling for food, and then like he's been following us around all day, like jumping up on his cat tree. Which looks out the window. It's where I saw a chipping sparrow. Like he jumped out the window. He watches the birds because he wants to eat them, and then I watch the birds from the from the feeder. Uh, so I don't know. All right, let's get back. I to love the picture. I love that the, the picture you posted the other day of you with the binocs looking out the window, and your and and Shamu is like right by your side, looking as well. Like is, is that a chipping sparrow? Jeez, that'd be a new yard bird. Yeah, and he <laughs> like um, it's funny. Like he'll 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 be up there. And then he'll look at me, like, especially when the starlings come by, and sometimes the squirrels, he'll just, like, give this, like, really annoyed me out, like, like, ow, are you seeing this? You know, like, like <laughs> I'm sure because he wants to eat it, but he, it's really funny. Um, yeah, so, all right. So, George and I uh, talk about yard birding, right? What's really interesting is you live in a condo um, in South Philly, like, the most dense... Like as densely populated as you pretty much get in the world. Yeah. All right. Like Philly is, uh, I think, the yeah. most densely densely. Um, we're really big. We have a lot of land with parks and stuff, but like the actual area people live in is, I think, we have some of the densest housing, like top two or three in the in the country. Right? Yeah. My my real estate agent told me that this neighborhood, well, the the area, sort of more or less what they call Center City. Um, between, you know, there are certain parameters. I think it was north of Tasker and south of Spring Garden, you know, river to river, um, was the second most densely populated chunk of land that size aside from Manhattan. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that is true, but it, if you look at it on Google Earth, it certainly looks very, very urban. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you probably have like 80, 100,000 people in your zip code. Yeah, I'm not exaggerating. Like my my zip, where I grew up in Northeast Philly, I had fifty thousand people in my zip code, and our houses are a little bit bigger than South Philly. So, yeah, my neighborhood in West Philly, seventy thousand people. So I bet you. It's so George lives in a condo in the most densely populated part of the city, 
just shy, just south of this, of, of uh, Center City. Um, and I live in a single house with a big yard. I'm the third house in from a 1,900-acre park. And you've lived in your house two and a half years. I lived in my house a year and a half. And I think I have like 60 species of bird. And you have what? How many? 80-some? 84. I just got American Black Duck uh, about two weeks ago. It was eight, number 84. So it's it's so we're talking about like what the differences might be, right? And I was hitting on this idea that my house, it's almost like the birds have a embarrassment of rich riches, right? Like if a a bird it finds itself over northwest Philadelphia, it has you know the Schuylkill River, which I cannot see from my house, um, or even the airspace over it, is the way um, it's laid out. Uh, the Roxborough Reservoir, the Maniunk Canal, and the Schuylkill Nature Center, which is the largest piece of private land in the city, and then my own, the uh, the public park that I live near, which is one of the top ten largest city parks in the world. So, I well, I've gotten some birds that you'll probably never get from your yard, which is like pileated woodpecker, uh, screech owl, and and uh, gray horned owl, because they just always want big pieces of wood to be. Yeah. You've gotten so many more things, um, especially like I think vagrant songbirds because they just, you know, they're going to, they put down a lot in your, so you see what, I guess you take it from here, but yeah. I guess you see birds a lot two ways, flying over like between the rivers and then also like um, migrant songbirds landing in the abandoned lot next to your house, right? Exactly right. Yeah, basically, and <clears throat> I think the other key difference between uh, your part of the city and mine is that I'm, I'm on like the westernmost sliver of coastal plain uh and you're you're up in the edge of the piedmont uh which which means that you'll you'll better chance at at hawk watching and some of the upland woodland birds especially with the wissahickon park right there down here i'm kind of equidistant between delaware river and schuylkill river um even though it's incredibly urban there's a fair amount of flyover traffic uh, birds that are either following the rivers or flying between the rivers. And then, yes, as you said, I am in a, a neighborhood where there is a mix of new homes and um, pretty much abandoned homes. And some of the abandoned homes actually are provide habitat. In fact, Tony, you'll be impressed to know I got a new yard mammal yesterday. I got a Carolina possum. Uh, in the yard next door, I'd seen mul- I've had raccoons there a number of times, and and uh, but never never a possum before. But luckily, there's just enough green space. I mean, it's not even an acre. It's like, you know, there. But but because there's a, enough kind of houses that haven't that have been kind of left alone for a long time, there's some yards with some Asian paper mulberries in them. And like you were saying, if you're a migrating bird and you're and you're migrating over the city. And all of a sudden, daylight hits, and you got to get out of the sky because there's Cooper's hawks and peregrine falcons ready to pick you off. You will take whatever habitat there is available, and there is a little bit of habitat here, and so they they will pitch in every now and then. I've I've had things like black-billed cuckoo and yellow-billed um, yellow-bellied flycatcher in the backyard here. Uh, I don't even really have a yard. I'm I'm on the, I'm, a, I'm a second floor condo, uh, but I can see into some neighbors' yards, which sounds a little dicey. But 
I can't actually see that far because of all the Asian paper mulberries. Um, and uh, But yeah, it's just enough green space that some of these things will spend a day, sometimes even a couple days if the weather's not right for them to move on. And uh, and it can be pretty good. So yeah, I've, I've had 84 species now. I even had a blue grosbeak once calling away, um, you know, which is a pretty good bird in really almost anywhere in Pennsylvania. It's funny that bird, you mentioned like two birds that I don't have in my yard that were are known or suspected breeding in the park next to my house, and I'm getting nuts. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like blue grosbeak and um, black billed cuckoo. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, yeah, black billed cuckoos. I'm sure breed opportunistically there in the Wissahickon, and maybe you'll get to hear one at least if you don't get to see one sometime soon. Yeah, especially nocturnal. If you do some nocturnal listening, get them. Yeah. Fly over. I don't even have yellow billed cuckoo yet. You know, I don't even have something that's crazy. I don't. I don't have. Um, um, I don't have a great catch fly catcher yet, which is crazy. Me neither. And I don't have like I will probably never get tufted titmouse. You know, here, like they they just they need big trees or some trees, and you know, a bird that's relatively common, um, you know, around here, Carolina wren. I've had twice. Both times in like July or August, when basically it's post dis- post breeding dispersal, they're moving away from natal areas or from nest areas, uh, and and that's when I've had them. I have never had a house wren here, which is almost unthinkable. I mean, this is a bird that is abundant in various parts of the city, but there's just no habitat here, and they don't seem to really uh, turn up downtown. That's part of, I guess, what I find so fascinating is there is a number of birds that will turn up in the city, in the most urban areas, with the least amount of actual habitat available. There are birds that routinely turn up in in those areas and others which just never do. Here's a, a little anecdote. And you were actually part of this um, earlier in the day, I believe. Were you there the day? A bunch of us birded in Melissa Hicken. Um, and I was... Todd and it was there, and usually if Todd's there, you're there, although you, you never know where you'll be. But I remember um, talking about how I feel like I under-record yellow-throated Vireo because I have trouble picking its call out, its song out. Now, right. I feel like I, you know, you know how some things just, for some reason, like you could, you know, like some people, I mean, I think it's way closer, but... Some people have trouble with pileated and flicker. I, I, I have no trouble. Like I, I, I know those, those those calls apart. No trouble whatsoever. But, right. And, and, and a lot of other things like that. But for some reason, the yellow-throated warbler call, I it just yeah. sorry yellow-throated vireo yellow-throated vireo call. I just don't pick up on that 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 easily. And yeah. I was uh, talking about that with um, some of you guys, and it was Hicken and. And I think we even heard some singing, and we, and, it, and I think we we're second guessing ourselves, being like, I think that's one. And, but I remember um, Todd was like, they're very emphatic. They, they, it's a, you know, that's the, and I remember him saying, and and I, uh, um, and I get, I get dropped off at home, um, and at the time I live in West Philly in a very urban, you know, row house, but there's a like a no man's land lot behind my house, and I hear a. Uh, a red start, and so I decided to go out back with my binoculars, and then a red start, and then I hear a bird. I'm like, that sounds like what I think a yellow throated vireo should sound like. And boom, there's a yellow throated vireo 
in this tiny, you know, there's just like four locust trees in this abandoned lot. And the only reason the abandoned lot's there is because there was a gas explosion like 20 years ago and it blew up six houses. Jeez. And people are be like, oh, this is big, six houses. Six Philadelphia houses isn't very big. <laughs> you know? And so that's so, the secret to creating yellow-throated vireo habitat is is periodic <laughs> gas explosions. Yeah. And, and 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 again, and I I don't have yellow-throated vireo or or um, red start from uh, my house <laughs> now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I think all of us that are sort of regular birders and spend a lot of time outside have those birds that just fly under our radar all the time. You know, like there's, there's ones also, I think that like, I know there are certain birds I am better at finding than the average person. And I also know that there are certain birds that I never find that other people seem to find with, you know, relative ease. Um, like, you know, I always, I always say I, I have personally never found a sawwood owl by myself. I have, I've seen lots of them over the years, but I personally have never actually found one. Whatever whatever skills are required to find a solid owl, I do not possess, um, and, which is a shame because, of course, it is one of the cutest animals on the planet. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I do pretty well with some other things, but certain things I just can't find. Yeah, that's just that's how it goes. Um, so we did a... Uh... I, I wrote a so I don't like pe- people who listen to the Urban Wildlife podcast back in the day, which begot this network. They know what I do for a living. I don't tend to talk about what I do for a living just because, um, you know, if I say something about cats, like you know, earlier you heard me talk about how much I love my cat, but I I have certain views on cat management, um, and yeah. and if um, Certain animal rights activists, you know, they hear that my pra- my pragmatic and scientifically based, uh, in general, you know, a shared consensus with wildlife biologists on best practices for managing wild, um, you know, invasive predators. It'll cause these folks to like um, call my work, and tr- I mean, literally, they did that to try to like get me fired because yeah. you know, and yeah. uh, I remember yeah. the episode. It must have been a fun one for you. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, and again, I'm just like, you never know, like, um, I don't imagine that rock jumper would get angry calls from animal rights. And if they did, they wouldn't care, you know? Um, well, yeah, but, I'm uh, not quite that way, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I guess I get your meaning. Yeah. So I'm not going to, so I'm not going to say who I work for, but I did read an article recently for work. I'm doing some work at home right now about how to bird from home. And one of the things I talked about is, um, bird cans. Right, um, watching um, the Panama feeders on Cornell's Panama feeding stations and uh, eagle cams and whatnot. And every time I, and twice I've written articles about this. Um, two different entities asked me to write articles. One's my work. One is an affiliate with my work. They both asked me to write these nature articles. And like, oh, just something about what you can birdie from home. So I, I, I talk about these cams, and I personally don't usually look at them very often myself. Other than recommending it to other people, but these cams do exist, and this is my question for you: Is how often do you ever look at these cams? You know, I almost never look at them, but I am extraordinarily grateful that they exist, and 
um, like, you know, perhaps I'm almost ashamed to admit this. Um, I don't watch nature specials that often. Um, I, you know, I've watched planet earth and, and blue planet and, you know, if stuff comes on, I'll watch it every now and then. Um, or like winged migration. Don't get me started on that. You know, like, the movie that came out. What, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I saw it. I actually saw the director talk at a, a film festival. Yeah. It, it was, you know, uh, I guess um, I am, I feel like I'm so inside baseball. I'm like such a nerd about this stuff that I, and I so get my fill of it through, you know, my general passion for it in life, but also through my work that often when I disengage, that's not what I want to do. Um, I want to, you know, catch up with a friend over a beer, watch a ball game, you know, whatever. Um, so I don't end up, I, I know that those cams exist and I know that they're extraordinarily popular and I would love to, like, for instance, I would love it if there was a cam on the Peregrine Falcons in City Hall in Philly or the you know, Bald Eagles at the Heinz Refuge. I think that'd be awesome because I know how popular those things are, but I don't watch them very often. Um, you know, you heard that um, Dan, Art, and I found a, a new Paragon Falcon nest in the city, right? I think I did see that, yeah, but I can't it's where right across from Cows Creek Park on the on um, tower. Because so I kept hearing them uh, last year, and I'm like, they got to be nesting nearby, right? And I assume that they're nesting on this bridge, not too far away, or um, in Upper Darby where there's some big buildings, and. And I kept hearing them, and I'm like, okay, they got to be back this year. And so I mentioned it, and Art was like, let's go look for them. So we spent a day, spent a couple hours looking for them. All these spots we thought, you know, this big water tower, this bridge, uh, you know, the tower theater area in Upper Darby, um, a few areas in West Philly. And then Dan was like, what about that church tower? It looks perfect for it. And we're like, huh. yeah. And then uh, Art had to go, and I had to go to work. I mean, I was uh, technically this was work for me. Uh, and then Art. Uh, and then Dan's like, well, Dan's still out of work by choice. And so Dan was walking around, and then he calls me. He's like, there's a falcon on top of the church. Sure enough, they're nesting in the church. It's awesome. Wow. And that so is... I'd like to put a can. I think we can access that nest. I'd like to put a can up there at some point. That would be sweet. I know you visited the one at City Hall with Art, Art McMorris, who is the Pennsylvania uh, state biologist who mon monitors all the peregrine falcon nests in the state of Pennsylvania. I think there's over 50 now, right? At least, um, I think, yeah. Yeah. They pretty much nest on almost every bridge, uh, major bridge in the Philadelphia area and a number of tall buildings and churches. Um, you, do you, I, I guess I'm, I would think if we would do a cam anywhere, the one at City Hall would seem like a, a really good candidate, but I don't know. I don't know. That, I don't know. Maybe it's just unrealistic for other reasons. You know, um, I I don't know why and I should probably not without going into details um, I have an in <laughs> with certain people at City Hall as you can imagine yeah. Yeah. and, and uh, I I, uh, um, I, I I don't know why we haven't tried that harder um, well it does take some money I mean it's it's not free yeah uh, it takes there's some work and money involved and I course, think there are some Wi-Fi issues or something. I don't know exactly, but I think also at City Hall, it's just, 
I mean, they put a box up there for what's also this, you know, it's ancient. It's the largest masonry building in the world. It's also it's the, the, yeah. la- the largest city hall in the world. I was going to say it's the largest municipal building, certainly in the country, I believe. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It's, a, it's something to behold. And it was one of the few places that had, had peregrine falcons nesting on it even before DDT. Yeah. Is it that right? There for over 100 years. Yeah. Wow. Because um, most of the falcons nesting on buildings, I think, is a byproduct of hacking them. Right. Right. They're the, 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 yeah, the, the, the ones that the old eastern anatom subspecies of peregrine falcons that is extinct now from the east. Um, I assume they nested on. I, don't, I actually don't know where they nested exactly. I should know that. I'm sure Art could tell us all about it if they nested on the ground. Cliff, uh, cliffs. Was it cliffs? Okay, because cliffs. and then the yeah. other one they would nest on occasionally would be um, like the broken off crowns of a tree. You know, like a barred owl or a great horn that when they're not um, will nest like a tree will break. Yeah, and the, and like in a in a storm, and the top will be open. They'll, they would nest in those, but only if they were, like, in a cypress swamp or, like, in right. the middle of, you know, like, they wouldn't nest in them if, the, if if it was in a canopy. But if it was, like, the only tree, above, you know, like, spread out from other trees, they'd nest in those, right. too. Like like an old isolated tree with, like, a raven nest or a crow nest or no, something? No, not even, not necessarily, I don't even, I don't know if peregrines will nest in, in, I know deer falcons will, but I don't know if, uh. Peregrines will nest in other nests. Maybe they do. No, this would just be like, um, like I know, like in the cypress swamps, like the broken off crown of a bald cypress, just like, just like that, like flat top part. They would nest on that flat, the flat surface that is remains there. Is yeah, I, I sort of the the iconic image I think of I think of is for peregrine falcons is like cliff faces with like little ledges where they nest yeah. usually. And which is why they've taken to the bridges and the skyscrapers around here. So I was, yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I think, I, I remember seeing Art McMorris's presentation on peregrines here, but it's been a while now, so I'm a little hazy on the details. I got to see a, a prairie falcons nesting on a, on a cliff in a reservoir in, in Oregon. You know, it used to be a, you know, a canyon, I guess, they flooded, and we're fishing there. And they were harassing the bald eagles. It was awesome. Wow, that's that is amazing. And it was that was cool too because um, we called a kokanee, and um, we were we were um, we we're at the point where we're like limiting, we're about to hit our limit of of kokanee. So we actually like tossed one back that was kind of small, and it did a thing where like it didn't recover. It didn't look like it was, and we were like really bummed. We were like, oh man, like that was we did something that was wrong. We should have kept that one like. And then maybe it's like, maybe we should go get it. And then a bald eagle grabs it. <laughs> wow. So, um, yeah. Um, so we have the interview with Bird the Feck at home. Ed, Ed Williams is going to come out. We talked about birding from our own homes and small little jaunts. Um, so the birding cams. Is there any other aspect of, of birding during... I guess we'll, we'll stick with a book in a minute. But it, um, other than reading books or... What not? Is there any other resources that you like or, or you've been doing? Um, oh, real quick though, you mentioned um, you don't like nature documentaries that much. Like, you, I mean, nothing you don't like them, but you don't. You know, and I, I watch a few of them because I'm, I'm kind of, you know, obviously I run a podcast network. I'm kind of into media, so I kind of like looking at other things. 
I actually do watch yeah. a bit. You know, I might watch one a month. I'll be watching more lately, as you can imagine. But I really like Curiosity Stream. It's twenty. Curiosity. It's twenty bucks okay. a, a year. It's an app on your phone that you can like play on a on a you know with like AirPlay or whatever on your uh, devices. But it's great nature documentaries. We watched this one of sperm whales the other day. It was phenomenal. And we watched. Oh one wow! On, yeah. Never. Yeah. I've never even heard of it. I'll check it out. Yeah, twenty bucks a year. I mean, you, literally, it's like the price of renting four or five movies, right? You know, and it has tons of stuff. And watch one on um, the red panda, literally called Red Panda, the world's cutest animal, and uh, <laughs> hard to argue. Yeah, they're so weird. I see that there's two species of those now. Actually, I they think split they're red they're, panda too. Yeah, they're, I think they're splitting them in two species. Yeah. Oh wow, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, they split orangutan in the, in the three. It's the gorilla in the two, chimpanzee in the two. I mean, I guess everything's been split. Yeah. So, Crazy. yeah, shall we segue to uh, talking about this book? Yeah, sure. I, I, I don't, I'm not going to go on about it too long, but I just, I, my father got a copy of this book to review. Um, I think he's going to review it for one of the, one of the major bird ornithological journals. Um, Your dad, he, He's a, he was a professional ornithologist, right? Or no, he, he wasn't. He, he is, my father's a career uh, librarian uh, and retired about 15 years ago. Um, and and he's, he's been a book guy forever. But in the process, he, he was mostly, act, most of his career was in the Philadelphia Free Library System or at Thomas Jefferson University, where he was in the, an administrator in the library there. And... Uh, so he's he's always been a book guy. He's been a birder since the age of nine, but he was never really like he never did it as like a profession, so to speak. But he's been reviewing bird books his entire life. I was very well, not his entire life, but since he was in his twenties anyway. And and uh, I was very lucky. I grew up surrounded by bird books. I think my father's bird book collection is getting close to four thousand books now, um, and I just grew up surrounded by that. Um, so yeah, he's he's always been a big bird book guy. Uh, I think he's probably published more reviews of bird books than anybody I would guess, um, but I'm not sure. But yeah, so he got this one. It's called The Real James Bond, and it's by Jim Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. And the subtitle is A True Story of Identity Theft, Avian Intrigue, and Ian Fleming. Uh, and it's got a it's got a nice um, little uh, blurb on the back by Dr. Frank Gill, who was president of Audubon at one point and uh, head of ornithology here at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia, one of the most esteemed ornithologists, certainly in the last few decades. Uh, and he he writes Bond, James Bond. Here is the intriguing backstory of three heroes. One was a charming museum ornithologist. One, a flamboyant ex-naval intelligence officer turned best-selling author. And the third, of course, our suave MI6 agent who saves the world over and over again. But this good read is neither fiction nor fantasy, rather. Jim Wright has penned a fine biography that meshes three fortuitously intertwined worlds. And I think what most people do not realize is that James Bond 
the original James Bond was an ornithologist, studied birds here in Philly at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia, uh, now Academy of Natural Sciences at Drexel University. And he lived in Chestnut Hill in northwest Philly, um, lived into the mid-1980s, I believe, uh, was best known for authoring The Birds of the West Indies. I think the first edition was published in the late 1930s. I have a copy on my shelf. No, you got a first edition? No, no, just one of his, you know. Okay. You know. I, I have two Bond that. books on my shelf. Nice. Nice. Yeah, and uh, and I, mo- I think a lot of us here in Philly know this story because the real James Bond lived here for so many decades. But outside of Philly, I think a lot of people don't realize that Ian Fleming, I don't want to say stole the name, but certainly appropriated it. He, The story is that he was, I think it is home in Barbados, and was writing, and he was trying to come up, he was writing Casino Royale, the first James Bond book, the first real uh, book on James Bond, you know, novel on the character of 007, and was looking for the, the name, and and he, and he looked on his bookshelf, saw The Birds of the West Indies by James Bond, and decided that this would be the title character for his, uh, for his character in his book. And uh, so it's a fascinating story. I've just only started this book, but it talks about uh, what it was like for, for, uh, to be James Bond as an ornithologist and, and, the, and the various discoveries and uh, and, and adventures that he had as an ornithologist, but then also what it was like once the character James Bond was born and all of a sudden his name took on a whole new meaning. And I think at first the novelty was kind of interesting and I think the novelty wore off. i got to get to the end of the book so we'll see. Uh, but, you know, there's I've heard stories about, you know, them getting prank called. Back in the days when there were phone books, people would look and see the name James Bond, and they would just call him up on the phone. And, this is Miss Morning Print. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is Q. Please report for duty. You know, uh, or you know, this is Octopussy. You know, please bring my helicopter back or whatever. You know, um, so they would get a lot of that. Um, but at any rate, I've been really enjoying it so far, and uh, Jim Wright has done a great job with this book, The Real James Bond, and. I would definitely recommend it for folks. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm hoping we can you and me both, Tony, over the course of this, we can do a little bit of what I'm reading now or what I'm watching, and uh, and share that with folks. So this is a good one. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm gonna order that right now because um, it's right up my alley. Obviously, uh, it's funny too. I've been getting into watches lately. I don't know if you're into this whatsoever. And like, like um, wrist watches. Yeah, wrist Mm-hmm. And uh, James Bond um, has had a huge influence on, on watch culture. And Ian Fleming, I believe, had a Rolex Explorer. Hmm. And he refers to it um, as a Rolex Oyster Perpetual, which it is, but he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't say the actual model. Like, lots of Rolexes fall under the Oyster Perpetual. Oyster means waterproof. Perpetual refers to the, cal- um, the date system on it. And um, and so, uh, but in the movies, I think the first Bond watch was the Rolex Submariner. And before Bond, you didn't wear a sports watch um, with a suit, and you certainly didn't wear one with a tuxedo. In fact, you're not supposed to wear 
a watch at all in a tuxedo. If you wear anything, it's a pocket watch, but you're supposed to wear pretty much no timepiece because you're you're out, you know, for the event is more important than anything else, right? And uh, if you wore a watch with a suit, it was a dress watch. And uh-huh. so Bond, you know, kind of broke convention by wearing a, uh, a sports watch with a, um, a suit, let alone a tuxedo. And, and so it's pretty funny. It all comes back to Ian Fleming and whatnot, so... Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that at all, but it, it 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 kind of like it kind of fits now that you say that, but I never would have guessed that. That's interesting. Yeah, and a weird like thing, um, not to get too crazy down the Roth rabbit hole, but uh, Sean Connery, he wears a um, a like a strap, like not a um, not a not a, the Submariner usually comes with the they call the oyster bracelet, and he's seen wearing it in Casino Royale or whatever, the first one he was in, um, with uh, this strap. And it's actually, the strap was undersized. You can actually see the, the spring bar sticking out on either side of it. And it's like this uh, band, it's strapped with like two um, bands on it. Like it's like striped band. And I know that like, um, um, there'd be um, like some military would have people wear a, a, a canvas or a nylon band because, and it would like wrap through, because it would attach the watch in two places. But if the buckle opened on a on a watch, it would uh, it would fall. The watch would fall off, right? So he's like, this is a certain way of wearing watch. Uh, anyway, so um, it started this whole trend of people wearing like expensive watches on like canvas or you know nylon straps rather than huh. it's this really thing. And so um, I actually have a a Russian dive watch, which is in, in, like, <laughs> like the equivalent of um like it's a I mean. A Rolex Matter, you know, a new one costs like ten grand or something like that. Yeah. But like, it's a Russian, so it's a Russian equivalent of a. I mean, it's only a hundred dollar watch, but you know, it does right. the same thing. You dive with it, and I have it on on the same strap that Bond have because you know Russians were often like the Soviets were often like the uh, the villain. So I think it's kind of funny that like I'm doing like my own little homage to to James Bond, but twisting it up by having a Russian watch instead of a you know a Russian dive watch. Yeah, and it's on the same same band. Um, so. Nice man. I'm sure it looks slick. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. And now that I've, I'm home and I'm not spending money on drinking or anything. Although I have a kid on the way, so I can't spend too much money. But watch prices are going down because people, uh, you know, are selling stuff. <laughs> I guess. So I've actually right. bought a few like cheap watches, mostly Russian because I like Russian watches on, on eBay since I've been home. Wow, your yeah. Russian watch collection is growing. That's not. Uh... That you, you, you've got to be uh, among a, a, a paltry few for whom that is the case. Well, they make really high quality, really good quality watches that are pretty reasonable. So, you know, and so if someone with my means is kind of like, you you know, you can either like, I could, I could sit, you know, my entire watch collection probably of like you know, 12 or 13 watches probably is equivalent of one third of a Rolex, of the bottom Rolex. You know what I mean? Like, right. Like, Right. Like maybe like a quarter of the cheapest Rolex, you know what I mean? But you know, it's a lot of Seikos and stuff like that. Seikos and Russian watches. Um, you know, I never, I've never successfully owned and kept a watch because I always lose them. The best one I ever had, I actually wrapped around my binoculars and it lived there for about ten years. But I, I was even like a close family friend once gave me like a a, a nice heirloom, um, you know, timepiece. And I was fumbling around after having gone to the bathroom once and by accident flushed it down the toilet. And at that point, I just decided that 
I was not meant to wear a watch because I just I lose them all the time. So uh, yeah, I've I've been giving them as gifts periodically, and I just I, I feel bad because I can't seem to keep them. I've um, uh, had a few false starts, you know, with them um, over the years. Like bought like you know a couple of, um, time ex- expeditions, uh, like one at Cabela's, whatever, and like um, broke them or lost them. You know, whatever. I, it, there's actually a picture of me in Brazil, like 12, 13 years ago, and I, I'm wearing a watch on my on my wrist, and I don't even remember. It looks like a Timex Ironman. I don't even remember owning one. Um, but uh, but I like them because I I look at my phone too much. If I pick up my phone, you know, like to look at the time, it's a rabbit hole. Yeah. And um, I work in environmental education with children a lot of times so i need to look at my i look at a phone my i need to look at a, a time telling device because often what i'm doing is i'm i'm i have a certain amount of time to do a lesson or my portion of the lesson with kids you know like um and then we rotate right so i have to look at my watch to know when to take the kids next right but you don't want to set a bad example and then next thing you know i'm like oh what did my wife text me or like oh Someone commented about this, Ooh, you know what I mean? Or like, let me argue about cats. No, obviously, what did that work? <laughs> Jokey. Uh, but um, so I was like, oh, let me get a, so a watch. Lets me um, um, not look at my phone. And I like dive watches. I was going to actually get dive certified, uh, scuba certified, um, but Angie got pregnant, um, which is great. But we're not going to do that, you know, when she's pregnant. We can't do it, right? So right, yeah, you know, we, we got to wait for a few years now like, until the kids you know, old enough where we can actually have hobbies again. Um, right. But, um, I, I like dive watches because they have a rotating bezel and you don't need them anymore for diving because people that have a dive computer, you don't actually need to look at your watch to know, to know when your air is going to run out. But a dive watch, the bezel, um, turns and you can, and when, so you can, when you go into the water before you, you turn it. And, and so that way you can, you can see clearly fast and easily, when you're going to run out of air or when you estimate you're going to run out of air and you can return to the surface. Mm. <clears throat> uh, and what I like that for is it's, I can easily turn it to when I have to um, switch my rotation with the kids. <laughs> and so when I'm out with kids doing, um, um, but I, I would think, you know, um, my days of field work are large. Although I actually want to do some field work oh, soon. Um, uh, if, if the viruses, if I, I supposed to do some surveys for, for work, um, but um, I would think if we're doing transects, you know, like point count surveys, a dive watch would be great because, you know, rather than having to, like, set a timer on your phone, you could just turn the bezel and, like, you know, you, you, you stand there, like, do your point count and just periodically look at your watch. And then when it gets to the, you know, when it gets to the spot, then you stop and move on. I think it would be, I think it's very handy and underutilized tool. But I I feel like the title of the episode of this podcast should be James Bond and the Rotating Bezel. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but real quick, back to before, you know, we're we're getting close to an hour here before we wrap up. Um, I have um, a new book I've been reading. um, I I buy lots of books. I don't read nearly enough of them. But a lot of them are reference books, so it doesn't matter. They're just on the shelf. Um, But I bought uh, The Birds of Paradise and Barrow Birds by uh, Phil Gregory. Nice. Um, and it's phenomenal. I love it. Uh, I want to do a, a proper review of it. What's cool for me is um, Phil Gregory owns, or used to own anyway, I think he might, I'm not sure if they did or not. Uh, I know just, it was 
the, he the, just he just sold Cassowary House uh, just recently. Man, I'd love to I'd love to buy that and move there. <laughs> yeah. But that the first Bird of Paradise I ever saw was at Cassowary House. Nice rifle bird. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah. My first as well. At Cassowary House. Yeah, first and only actually. Yeah. I've um. Actually, Rifle Bird wasn't quite at Cassowary House. It was near there, but not there. Yeah, so I, um, yeah, so my first, it was literally in this man's yard. Although he he wasn't there. His son and his wife was there. were there. He was away. I think he was in New Guinea. I was, yeah, I'm, I'm lucky to have traveled with Phil several times. Um, I know him, know him fairly well, although I haven't seen him much in recent years. But him and I did, um a tour together to Oman in the UAE, which which uh, flew in and out of Dubai, which most people wouldn't think of as a burning city. And um, and we did, let's see, we did an Australia trip together, um, one or two others as well. But uh, great guy, really. Yeah, we, we did a sub-Antarctic Islands cruise in New Zealand. And yet, few, few people know birds as a whole the way he does. And living at Cassowary House for as long as he did. Um, incredible place. Yeah, incredible place. Yeah, I thought, you know, I think I actually mentioned this with Ed, <laughs> so I don't know if I'm going to go through it again, but, I, you know, I was like, oh, Cassidy House, like maybe I'll see one, you know, crossing a trail in the morning. They're everywhere. I mean, the two of them were there all day, every day. Like literally Ed, met, which he said it on the last interview, but he, he was joking, he's like, you're the only person I think I've ever met for the first time in the presence of a cassowary. Like literally, like... <clears throat> The trip I did with Ed, um, I didn't meet Ed till the next day. I, we were they were we weren't originally going to Castlery House, and when I realized that um, I was going to go to Northern Australia and not, you, there are cassowaries in the very top of Cape York. There's like two populations of cassowaries in in uh, Australia, and um, but I didn't. Um, we're going to the northern, the the, the most northern, I mean, literally the top tippy tip, tip of Australia. And they're really hard to see there. They're a lot more easy to see around Cairns. So yes. I, um, I was like, well, I got to see them. I got to see one, and I want to see all the other stuff, right? And um, they're like, we'll see you at the Castlery House tonight. And um, so uh, we did, and it was ridiculous. Like they were the, there the whole day, and, and um, you know, it was it was, it was amazing. And, you know, I got to see his his book collection and like all these great paintings and stuff. And I was like, man, I'm going to meet this person. So He's we got a incredible library and if people don't know what a cassowary is you should look it up they say it's one of the few birds on earth that could eviscerate a human being in a matter of seconds if they so chose so chose they're really they're big birds uh sort of like ratites or almost sort of like ostriches or rheas i think they're the third biggest bird in the world right yeah and they the the, the, the claws talons whatever you want to call them that they have are formidable yeah. formidable so you've only seen is it, wait, did you say you've only seen one species of bird of paradise now ever? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. I've never been to New Guinea, so uh, and you didn't see the other two, the other three. I've in not, Australia? I've not been up to the Cape. I've not been up to the Cape, Cape York area. Um, and you haven't seen the the more southerly rifle bird. The I know there's magnificent Victoria and there's three in Australia. I want to say Victoria is the one I saw. Um, I, which, whichever one is by Cassowary House, I can't remember actually. I yeah. saw it there in its um, um, O'Reilly's guest house, that place that uh, where there were the big fires in it, Lamington. 
Lamington National Park, um, but uh, also oh, an incredible place. I think um, O'Reilly's, if I'm not mistaken, the one near Brisbane, like New South Wales and the southern Queensland, I think that's paradise. And okay. it's Victoria by Cairns, and then it's magnificent, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. And I, I think see, and I got you're, you're more current on it than I am. And, and there's also tr- Trumpet Manu Code. Yes. And, and I saw I got to see those two up in the, that area. That was incredible. We're going to do a whole episode on that. Cape York nice. was awesome. Was, yeah. um, but my favorite place in the world, honestly, if I was to pick a spot, would, if I was there to pick up and move, it would be Cairns area, hands down. I like to pronounce it Cairns just, <laughs> just to irritate people. Yeah. <laughs> All right, buddy, man. We're, we're we're pretty. I mean, we could go whatever, but I I like to. Do yeah, yeah. I mean, whoever's still listening has probably had enough. So yeah. uh. Well, that's the thing <laughs> is I am. Um, I personally like prefer conversational podcasts where the interviews we do both. So what I like to do is is uh, have a conversational podcast and then keep, and the interview podcast keep keep them separate. You know. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so. So Makes yeah, I, if you could, um, I, I think we should try to interview um, Phil Gregory about his book soon, and also um, the author of this James Bond book would be great too. I lo- I love that idea. Also, I think uh, Holly Merker's Ornotherapy um, Facebook group um, that would be a good one for us at some yeah. point. I I, uh, I uh, and I want to talk to her. Yeah, I want to talk to her, Holly very soon. I'd love yeah. to do a podcast with Holly. Um, I have talked to her about a couple things before. She's I wish he was. Um, she's a one of the greatest things that ever happened to planet Earth in human form. I agree, 100%. and I wish uh, she would. Maybe she's getting into more, but I wish she would be more of a ham like me because she's uh, got so much <laughs> to offer. I mean, she's so incredible. So she is. I'll reach she out. Is. I'll text her right now. All right, yeah. buddy. It's great hearing your voice. Um, I'm just, I hope to see you in person sooner than later. Um, yes, brother. Yes, but, uh, thank. You. We'll do this again in two weeks. Sounds good. Looking forward to it, amigo. Everybody, cheers! And uh, back to and everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, like and subscribe on your favorite uh, podcasting uh, format of choice. Uh, it's uh, you can tweet at us at Wildlife Obs Network or Instagram and Facebook and all that. And uh, please like and share. Thank you so much. Cheers. Cheers, guys.